0: Hey there, welcome to Take Away with Sam Okus, a podcast from Nation's Restaurant News. I am Sam Okus, Editor-in-Chief here at NRN, and this is the show where I give you an all-access pass to the restaurant industry's most influential decision makers. This week I'm talking with Scott Greenberg, a former restaurant franchise who is now a speaker and author of multiple books, including the just-released Stop the Shift Show turn your struggling hourly workers into a top-performing team. Scott joined the podcast to talk about the state of hourly employees in the restaurant industry and how restaurant owners and operators can improve their recruitment and retention by paying attention to the wants and needs of their hourly workforce, particularly their younger employees. In this conversation, you will learn more about why employers should embrace their younger workers' connections to social media, why managers need better training. Uh, in how they manage people and why the best organizations have culture by design, not by default jumping now into my interview with author and speaker scott greenberg by the way if you like what you hear scott is also a regular contributor to nrn and you can find his articles under the wealthy franchisee headline at nrn.com slash speaker also don't forget to stick around after this interview as i will share my six takeaways from this discussion actionable insights that you can take with you on the go All right, I am sitting here with Scott Greenberg, a speaker, an author, a contributor to Nations Restaurant News, uh, most importantly, recently authored the book, Stop the Shift Show, which if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see I'm holding a copy of this book. I believe it is out now. Scott, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: I'm so glad to be back with you.
0: All right, so Scott, we're going to talk about, well, I guess we got to talk about first off, what does Stop the Shift Show mean? What, if, if it's not obvious from the title of that book, what's this book all about?
1: Well, the subtitle helps, so it's called "Stop the Shift Show: Turn Your Struggling Hourly Workers into a Top Performing Team." So, anybody who's managing in the restaurant industry certainly knows about the struggle of managing hourly workers, and uh, and aspires to, or might be hopefully successful at building a top performing team. But it's not always easy with hourly workers, and uh, I've heard it described—I wouldn't say exactly described—as a shift show. But um, you kind of get the idea there. But those who are working hourly shifts, they can be tough to manage. And so this is a book about how to manage them and how they're different from those who earn a salary.
0: Yeah, it's obviously everybody listening to this right now, I'm sure, has some sort of relationship to hourly workers. The restaurant industry is the industry built on the backs of hourly workers. So a very, very important conversation to be having. But why this conversation now? I guess let's start there. Can you, can you dive into a little bit about the state of things for hourly workers? Why do we need this book now?
1: Well, people have always struggled with employees, and I think they've struggled with hourly workers in particular. Um, we often associate hourly workers with generations and ages, and people have always said kids these days right? But it's really (laughs) kids all days, right? I tell Mm -hmm. people what makes Generation Z different from all the other generations is at the moment, they're the youngest. So Mm -hmm. different in addition to all the distinguishing features of this generation, the youth itself presents a series of challenges, as it did with every generation before. So that's part of it. But these days, it's tough because workers now have more choices than they've ever had. They have all the usual choices, but now there's this whole gig economy. So my son, who used to work for In-N-Out Burger, and then, you know, he didn't think he'd have a basketball season during the pandemic. And then the coach said, hey, come back because we get to have a season. So he left In-N-Out. But when his basketball season was over, he was 18. And he decided he could make more money delivering fast food um, than he could uh, working in a fast food restaurant. Plus, he could do it whenever he wanted, play music in the car and be there with his friends. So people have more options. And so hiring today is harder. And keeping people today is harder. It's always been hard, but never as hard as it is today. And so I would like to be part of helping people uh, solve that problem.
0: Yeah, that's such an interesting thing. I was actually talking to a a restaurant owner earlier this week, said the exact same thing, which is like, I have the hardest time recruiting uh, teenagers especially and he's like i just don't know if they don't want to work but it seems like what you're saying is that the options available to them and, and and in some ways it almost feels like this sort of choose your own adventure that especially with young people today because the gig economy especially it's like i can do a little bit over here i can do a little bit over here um what is the nature of work available particularly to young people today
1: well, first of all, I think it's important to understand that for young people are living a different life. And let's put aside, again, the generational differences. Like people ask me, you know, or ask audiences, you know, is Generation Z really worse? And I say, yes, they are. Okay. And I've got, <laughs> I've got two kids who are part of that generation. I've got all kinds of complaints, ghosting, right? Not showing up for interviews, telling your boss when you're going to work, mental health breaks. Through my Generation X perspective, those things are just crazy. I, I can't mm-hmm. imagine it. But when I take off my Generation S pers- generation X perspective and I look at them without judgment, then it's easier to understand them. And, you know, then it's easier to, to manage them. So I, I, now that I've said that, I forgot what your question was. But um, like just Yeah, the on,
0: nature of work, I guess, because oh. as you mentioned, like sort of the gig economy and all sure. of that. So like, So for somebody who, like I said, this owner I was speaking to earlier this week says, I can't find them. What do you say to somebody who says that?
1: Okay. So here's the thing. You don't need to find all of them. You just need to find enough to staff your particular restaurant. And I get it. So part of it is, is you have that many more people fishing in the same pond. Right. So, Mm -hmm. and it's easy to say that they're lazy. It's easier to, to, you know, so here's the thing. It's like, we, you, you, you you only have to work with, you know, who is there. So what you need to do, if you're fishing the same lake as everyone else is you need to have better bait. Right.
0: Mm.
1: And you have to have change your expectations. Certainly when it comes to high school kids, when I was in high school, the top athletes could play multiple sports. You can't do that today because every sport is so demanding year-round right. that now there's expectations for SAT courses and test prep. And a, and to get a 4.0, which doesn't gar- guarantee you admission anywhere, there's a lot more pressure that's put on teens these days. And we can right. get into the cell phones and all that kind of stuff, but they're living a very different life than some of us older people. But again, they do have more options because they can do DoorDash, because they can Drive Ubers because there's so many other places that want them. Um, employers have to work that much harder to become employers of choice. And from mm-hmm. the employer's perspective, I understand the stress around that. But as a consumer and as a parent of two kids renting the workforce, I like the idea that employers have to step up because no one is entitled. Okay, employees mm-hmm. aren't entitled to money. Employers aren't entitled to employees. Right. So the right. idea is that we all have to step up our game, I think that makes for a better work environment. But as I have discovered writing this book, there are a whole lot of restaurateurs out there from single unit places to big, you know, much larger organizations that have cracked the code. They've proven that mm. even in today's environment, you can recruit, you can retain and you can get high levels of performance, provided you're willing to commit to the things that make that happen.
0: And we're going to get into who those companies are and what they're doing specifically. But you mentioned that cell phone thing, and I, I wanted to just explore that a little bit because, yes, of course, part of the you know thing with phones is teenagers, they're they're just so consumed by their devices. So it's sort of a function of their timing and how much time they're spending on these devices. But the other thing that's unique about this generation is, of course, the information overload that they have from especially brands. And so I think what's interesting about that is, you know, if I'm an employer, of course, I'm, I have to be all over social media. I have to have a, a, you know, a very large footprint online. So all of my potential employees know everything about my brand before they even, fi- you know, fill out an application. Right. So I'm wondering what you think about just this fact of like how brands can set themselves up to be appealing to these younger workers via the, the messaging, the marketing, you know, the, the content that they're putting out into the world.
1: Sure. I think a lot of businesses suffer because they use the business as a place to express their principles. You know, Mm -hmm. work is supposed to be a certain way, right? This is business protocol. This is what's professional and this is what's not. And I think for a lot of people, it's holding themselves back from conducting business in 2024, from accommodating customers in 2024, and certainly in recruiting and retaining employees. Whether we like it or not, for better or for worse, We live in an age that's all about technology where not just young people, but most people are glued to their phones. And I'm Generation X. And honestly, if I'm away from my phone, it it even causes me stress. My kids forget about it. My daughter won't go to school if she can't find her phone. (laughs) So what we need to do is put our principles aside. It's not like we're really sacrificing our values, but just hit the reset button and say, I want to use my business to make money, to grow. So I need to lean into today to lead into the consumer marketplace, but also the labor marketplace. And so what does that mean in terms of technology? So if they want to be on social media, then stop thinking, well, I own their time and how dare they be on Instagram during work hours. That's who they are. Let them be on Instagram and encourage them to post things about work, about your business and not just about your products and services, but how about how awesome your work environment is? Let them tell their whole networks how much fun they're having at work. What a great team there is. Let them express pride about what's happening because that's going to help you with your recruitment. Set up a mm. Facebook page for your particular business that's for your employees where they can post pictures, that kind of thing, and really kind of lean into it. Let them make videos that they can put up on, on TikTok. If that's what they're into, use it to help raise their morale, to help recruit, and to help promote your business.
0: Right. Oh, that's such a great point. That's so fascinating. Um, you mentioned that in writing this book, you've you've discovered some of these, uh, some of the brands that are really doing this very, very well. Who are the brands that you think have figured this out? And what is it that they're doing? What are the traits that really define doing having this great connection with the hourly workers? Sure.
1: In some cases, it's a brand. In some cases, it's individual owners. Uh, mm, do a lot okay. of work in the franchise space, and certainly lots of restaurants are there. So, in some cases, are really great brands like Jersey Mike's. Uh, yeah. They do a great job culturally, but in some cases, it's individual franchisees within a brand that are doing better than others. So, you know, one example that really came up was KFC. I interviewed one of their top franchisees, uh, Justin Stewart. He owns 128 quick service restaurants, right? Fast food, KFC. Mm-hmm. So he has a ton of exposure to all things hourly worker, in particular, younger hourly workers. So if there's anybody who has a right to complain about kids these days, it should be him. But he didn't when we talked. Quite the opposite. 128 restaurants across a number of Western states. He says he has lived a great life, and it's these young employees who've enabled it to happen. And he's cracked Mm. the code. And it's it really, it's a series of little things. So at the end of the pandemic, when everybody needed employees to come back, he did an, an analysis to find out what were, what were the average wages in all these different regions. And then he increased it by $1 an hour temporarily because he knew that, that couldn't, you know, he couldn't sustain that. He, you know, right. he doesn't want to throw money at the problem, which is what most people do. But he realized that recruiting people doesn't mean anything if you can't keep them. So he's very deliberate about culture very deliberate about the employee experience as deliberate as he is about the customer experience. It's even small things. Like, so when a new employee comes to work, they spend an entire day with the manager of that restaurant, just getting to know each other, walking around. They feel mentored the entire day. They get introduced to every single employee. They want to make sure the employee feels good as opposed to sticking them on the floor as quick as possible to put them to work because he Mm -hmm. wants them to stay. And what makes people stay are the connections to other people. When they onboard people, they ask questions to get to know them. Even things like, hey, what's your favorite candy? The employee Mm -hmm. thinks it's just a casual question to get to know them. But a month or two later, when they do something well, they're going to get that specific candy as a thank you. And it's so thoughtful. They realize it's their favorite. It's so much more than a $50 gift card to Starbucks or a $100 bonus. The thoughtfulness, the personalization makes a difference. So it comes down to all these little things that create a great workplace. So, you know, we know that customers come back because of how the experience makes them feel. Employees stay or leave because of how the job makes them feel. So that is one. Another example, um, Ray Howell is a multi-unit owner of Tropical Smoothie Cafes in Florida. Same thing, has much better retention than other franchisees within the same system. He loves his employees because he focuses on how they feel. So because of that, he not only has employees, he has multiple generations, mothers and daughters Mm -hmm. who work together, and they stay for a really long time. And in all these cases, I found people are not necessarily paying that much better or better at all because it's less about what employees get and more about how employees feel. And Mm -hmm. we have to control our labor costs. And so we can't rely on what employees get. So if we can invest in how we make them feel, We're going to be more attractive and more attentive.
0: And it's getting more and more that way too, right? I mean, these younger generations, I mean, social media is essentially everybody screaming out, notice me, notice me. I mean, it's pretty obvious that especially the younger generations today they want to be seen. They want to be heard. Um, it, it, to what extent should you take that, though? Because, I mean, you still have demands of your employees. You still have expectations. They still have responsibilities, of course. Um, so how much do you – how much can restaurants really facilitate that relational connection and I mean, have you seen any like, you know, I know I've heard of restaurants that are offering college scholarships and or, uh, you know, um, great incentives to stick around. What other like big kind of things do have you seen restaurants doing to really kind of ratchet up that relational component?
1: Well, so I've seen a lot. And I have to tell you, you know, again, sometimes people hear the motivational speaker and they think that's all theory. I was a multi-unit franchise owner myself with Edible Arrangements. I had my own employees. So I've been there. I've done it. And I've had the headaches and I struggled in the beginning. Um, So I understand what it's like. I don't like the idea of trying to be an employer of choice by just giving stuff to people. I mean, if my kids work someplace and they're going to give them a college scholarship or a trip or all these kinds, I mean, that's great. But I don't think that's why people stay. I don't think they stay because of what they get. And for so many restaurants, Financially, you just can't sustain that, especially as minimum wage going up and and all that. It's just, it's really kind of tough. And so, and it's easy. It's easy to throw money at the problem. What requires a bit more uh, of a time investment is focusing more on the employee experience, not giving them stuff, but understand what culture actually is. Mm -hmm. And, And it's not about being nice to people. Culture is about the social dynamic, the social norms between any group of two or more people saying, this is the way we do things here at our restaurant. This is how we greet each other. This is how we resolve conflict. These are our rituals. And employees are not going to own the restaurant, but they own the culture. And so I would much rather people invest time in that than invest big money with these big extravagant things because I don't think people should come to work because of what they get. They should come to work because they feel a connection to the group that's there and that will make them stay.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. Um, now, of course, with somebody who owns 128 KFCs, he's not in every one of those 128 KFCs every day, of course. Um, there is a responsibility here, particularly of the managers. Um, let's explore that concept because you have a system, you have teammates who are responsible for trickling down this culture, if you want to call it that, or this sense of connection to your employees. What is that responsibility of managers and how can owner operators you know, tap into their managers to be able to, to execute these kinds of programs.
1: One of the statistics I was just shocked to discover when researching for the new book is that the average person who is put in a management position fulfills that role for 10 years before getting any formal training on people management. Maybe they'll get trained in the systems, right? So maybe in like a KFC, they'll be trained on how to fill out reports, how to schedule, how to run payroll, right? But that's only Mm -hmm. part of management. The other part is managing people, building culture, resolving conflict, motivating people. Like that's a huge part of it. But how do most people become managers in a restaurant? Well, usually they're competent and responsible as an employee. And you need a manager. So you know what? That employee is great. They're my superstar. I'm going to put them in charge. But management is a completely different skill set than making fried chicken or than cleaning the floor or tending bar. And I find that most restaurants aren't providing that kind of training. And certainly in the franchise world, you know, franchisors are scared to get involved to train franchisees in management because they don't want to be called joint employers. Oh, right. Right. So there's a, um, there's this black hole when it comes to management training. And so I think that if restaurateurs are willing to make that investment to really give these people on how to, the opportunity to get trained on how to manage people, Um, they're going to get much better results. So there needs to be that commitment, not just training in systems, but in the social interactions of what brings out the best in employees.
0: Well, it's interesting because some of that is can be trained. And some of that is, you know, kind of sort of just inherent to your personality, right? When you talk about something like soft skills, uh, you know, you look for people who are, you know, generally by nature, kind and, you know, have good connections to people personable. Um, So tell me about how much of this can be trained and how much do you have to look for certain traits when you're hiring people?
1: Well, so I, according to Gallup, I believe it said only 10% of people are born naturally with the instincts and skills to manage. But there's Hmm. another percentage. I don't remember what it is. It's in my book. It might be like 15 or 20% that have the potential provided they get the training. So the majority of people can't really manage, which means we just can't take anyone and put them in that position. So some people, it's just, it's natural who they are. It's great if we can find them. Um, But there is a possibility to elevate people we're willing to do it. So, if you're hiring a manager, then you need to sort of ask questions that test both for you know, being results-oriented, because you got to get stuff done, but also people-oriented. Do they have the social skills? Do they understand what culture is, right? Or do they just think, well, I'm just going to ask about their day and then buy them pizza and then pat myself on the back, mm-hmm. right? Do they even recognize the importance of that, of, of both the hard skills and the soft skills? So no, not everyone can do it, and if everyone could, they would. Right. Mm -hmm. It's a that's, but that's why there, there are, you know, you get paid more to be a manager because it's a special position.
0: Yeah. How much do you feel like the restaurant industry has always struggled with, this notion of uh, flipping burgers, right? That it's the bottom rung of the ladder. And I just feel like I'm talking more and more to restaurant owners about this notion of how do I show my team that the restaurant industry can be a career? And I'm curious in in your research of this book, because of course, hourly employees, they don't want to be hourly forever, right? They want to get to become a salaried employee. And I've, I've um, talked to so many people who have been in their uh, the restaurant industry their entire career and have made a very lucrative living out of that. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, like in the research for the book, ha- did you discover any companies that were particularly good at showing their employees the potential of a career in the restaurant industry? And how much do they have to kind of show that trajectory ahead of time to ensure that they're still incentivizing those hourly empl- employees to achieve these certain goals?
1: Sure. So a, a few thoughts on that. So, you know, McDonald's, that entire sector, uh, you know, notoriously there's, you know, quite a churn rate there. Uh, but those who stay at McDonald's go really far. Like I've worked with them a few times and you look at the, like the executives at all different levels. So many of them started off flipping burgers within you know, yeah. that organization. So it can be, it can be done. Um, one client of mine who I just worked with yesterday, I did a presentation for the, all the GMs, uh, chainwide, chain wide is Mendocino Farms. I'm based in Southern California. And so they're really good at culture. They're really good at management. And they invested. I mean, that's why they had me there. They bought copies of my book for everyone, which of course I appreciate. But just the gesture of bringing in someone like me, the gesture of buying the book, messages to these people, we care about you and we care about this. So it's not just about our recipes and scheduling and cutting costs and all that. It's also about the people side, which is really consistent with their mission and all that. So Mendocino Farms does it really well. Um, But here's the thing about Generation Z. There are a lot of characteristics that make them a little bit different than other generations, and one of which is they're very entrepreneurial. Like a huge percentage of them really aspire to run their own businesses. And so Mm -hmm. what I told Mendocino Farms and what I've been sharing with a lot of groups recently that is hiring Generation Z to work at restaurants is... You find those kinds of people and then treat the job as a paid internship. So they're getting paid for the work that they're doing, but you're also having conversations with them to help them understand that doing that job, they can learn about business and they can learn about business ownership. So you're, what you're explaining is as they're you know, serving customers saying, this isn't just our way of doing it. You can take these very same principles when you run your own businesses. So mm-hmm. I um, work with a guy, he owns a, um, a Beaver Tales. Uh, two locations in Canada. They do pastries. And so he looks for college students who are interested in running their own businesses and they do great, even though the work is seasonal. And even though they have constantly changing schedules, they stick with him for years because they feel like they're being trained for the future. So again, think what you want about generation Z, but knowing that they're entrepreneurial, you can appeal to that by meeting this other need of theirs.
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And going back to that thing about, you know, encouraging your employees to tap into their own social media, when I when I feel particularly old is when I see Gen Z and how they can create content so easily on their phones via social media. That's when I feel oldest, because I'm like, that to me is entrepreneurial, right? Because they're, it's very creative content that they come up with. Um, and and generally that could be a real resource for restaurants that employ those folks. Um, I want to switch a little bit over to talking about the customer and I think just the state of restaurants today. Because one thing about restaurants today is they're becoming more and more powered by technology. There's a lot of conversation about automation, a lot of t- conversation about robotics and, of course, naturally that leads into a conversation about labor because then you think, okay, well, if you've got some robots, you know, flipping burgers or doing whatever, um, we can replace people. We can make this automatic – this whole restaurant could be automatic, could be a, a robotic restaurant. Um, but I also – you constantly have that sort of push-pull because you also hear, oh, you still want that hospitality. You still have to have to have that personal nature. I guess where I'm setting this up for you, though, is to is to ask you – the state of labor and hourly employees, as it collides with innovation and technology and automation, what do you expect to come of that? Because on one hand, it's also, automation is also very good for hourly employees, that it makes their jobs easier. Um, and I, I guess I'm wondering, what do hourly employees think about this um, evolution of restaurant operations to more of this technology? And where do you see it, I guess, changing the state of labor in general? Sure.
1: You know, my personal mission isn't to improve humanity. My personal mission is to improve business. I said yep. before, no one is entitled to anything. We should all be held accountable, and that includes, you know, restaurateurs and business owners and managers, but also includes the employees. And if they're not offering something that can't be done by a robot, well, then they're not entitled to have that job. So I actually support automation. Right? I think technology helps and technology has never really created fewer led to fewer jobs if anything it intends mm-hmm. to inspire more jobs right different jobs right and so if, if the concept of you know in quick service restaurants the cliche is flipping burgers Well, if that just can be done by robots and it can be done you know efficiently and expensively with you know same or better quality then i encourage that and guess what high school kid or someone else who doesn't have their skills you're going to have to find something else And they will. There's always those other things and otherwise you're not going to survive. And so, uh, you know, I think that is okay because like I said, there will be work and it forces people to then try a little bit harder. So I actually support the use of technology. Um, I think humans can be replaced, but what can't be replaced is humanity. I go to a restaurant, not just for food, but for an experience. I personally don't like going to a table and scanning a menu with my phone and then placing the order right there. I understand mm-hmm. efficiencies for the restaurant. Um, but for me, it's missing something because I want to be served. I want to be catered to, right? I feel yeah. so much of my, I work so hard every now and then I want to pay some money so I can be pampered. And so I can pretend like I'm important. <laughs> right. And I need people <laughs> yeah. for that. I need people to, to call me, sir, to say, thank you. Is there anything else I can get for you? I need that experience. And so restaurants that provide that for me are higher up my list of the places that I'm going to go. So there's a balance Mm -hmm. that's there. So maybe in the kitchen, it's great. But when it's customer facing, I think people want that experience. Certainly I do. But I guess the marketplace will ultimately tell us. But if you want my business, especially as a Gen Xer, I kind of need some flesh and bone and some eye contact and some humanity.
0: Right, yeah, and that that gets me to this sort of customer component of it too, because I feel like this has come up a lot of my conversations recently. Which is, you know, a, a lot of restaurant leaders I talk to they say, you know, the the share of off premises uh, business continues to go up. That and as digital ordering tools get better and better, more and more of their customers just, I mean, they a lot of them are not even stepping foot in their restaurant. Right, they're they're pressing a button on their phone and then showing up at their doorstep. And so the restaurant leader is asking themselves. How important is the hospitality inside the restaurant, that human connection? Obviously you're still getting some people in and you can't drop the ball on that. But I think they're asking themselves like, especially in fast casual and QSR, I would say because of its nature around convenience and speed, they're asking themselves how much do I really need to invest in this hospitality piece when more and more people just want this thing to go? So I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that and yeah. how much restaurants should consider the hospitality component going forward.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I have opinions. I don't know that I'm necessarily an expert on this, but I will say this. Um, so obviously, you have to go where the customers are and where the opportunities are, right? And if what you want to do is you want to open up a ghost kitchen where you're not interacting with customers at all and you can make a great living doing that, then terrific. But if you have some kind of hybrid and people are still coming, the people who are coming in are the people for whom hospitality really matters. They're willing to make that trip to have that interaction. And if their business matters to you, well, then your game needs to be better than it has ever been. But for those people who are still at home, um, again, what are their needs? In that particular case, well, then it's just about the food, right? And Mm -hmm. so, how can you make that experience better? How can you? Appeal to their human side in the online ordering experience to make it friendly, to make it personable, to not just facilitate a feeling. The best restaurants aren't just selling food. They're elevating emotions. They're using the, the, mm. the cooking, the delivery, the selling of food to elevate people's emotional state. How we make people feel will determine if they come back to us and what they say about us. So we're always looking for ways to appeal to their emotion. And if it's through direct human-to-human contact, great. If it's through more automated systems, more remote systems, we're still looking for that edge. Otherwise, there isn't that much that distinguishes you. But I in my heart of hearts, I believe that even with younger generations, we are a social species and people are always going to want some kind of human connection. And so where there's an opportunity to do that, we need to do it better than everyone else.
0: Yeah. You mentioned a word earlier that has been used, overly used, I think, by a lot of companies uh for the last couple of years. And that word is culture. Um, And I think a lot of companies like to use this word culture to try to brag about, oh, we got this great culture or whatever. But it's, it's a slippery term, right? It's kind of hard to define. I think it depends on the brand. But I, I'm curious to get your definition of culture and how much you feel like a company corporate culture, how important is that? that it trickles down to the hourly employee because i feel like when a company talks about a culture often they might be talking about well this is what the corporation believes but if you ask any of their hourly workers they might not have a clue that that's what how they define the culture right so how important is that concept of culture how would you define it how important is it is is it to the hourly employee
1: in researching the book i did a lot of research like you know you know google searches for like you know best places to work what's interesting is the majority of lists their criteria is f- focused on what people get. Oh, this, you know, mm-hmm. here's the number one, because they get this salary, they get this perk, they get this bonus. It's all about what people get. And that has mm-hmm. nothing to do with what culture is, right? And I think of the best and worst places that I've worked in my life. It wasn't because of what I got. It's because of how the job, how my employer made me feel. Mm-hmm. So most play- businesses don't even know what culture is. They think culture is what are all the things we do to be nice to people? Kindness is great, but kindness isn't culture. Culture is the social norms, the dynamic that exists between two or more people, right? Some cultures are great. Some cultures are terrible, but there are still social norms. So the best organizations, they have culture by design. Most organizations, it's by default. So mm-hmm. you know, I, used to, I was one of the original employees at a hotel. I was a, a bellhop, but I didn't, couldn't start for a week because of my school schedule. Well, a week was all it took for the culture to form on its own because the the management had nothing to do with it. So I show up and what was the norm? Two or three bellmen would be standing out front and if some fat Mercedes pulled up with a potential big tipper, we would push and shove to see who could get there first to carry their luggage. (laughs) When I was trained by an experienced bellman who's worked three shifts, that's how much experience, you know, he said, here's how we do things here. Um, The new person who's being trained, they carry the luggage but the person who they're shadowing uh, the person who is experienced is training, they keep the tips. And Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, that's our culture. It's cutthroat and we're just here to get, to get tips. It's not all customer focused. You know, if, if, like dry cleaning came in, we wouldn't just automatically take it to the hotel room. We'd keep calling and calling until they were there to say, Hey, I have your dry cleaning would now be a good time for me to come. So I could collect the tip. That was what the culture became. These are the norms of our work environment. So great work environments need to be very clear about how they want people to be together. Mm -hmm. But one reason why it doesn't come down from the corporate level to the hourly levels, because so many times when culture is described, it's these ridiculous mission statements and value statements. There's all this pageantry around it and it has no meaning. So a business says we exist to improve the world. So go get me a cup of uh, strawberry ice cream. (laughs) For the person who's scooping ice cream, they're not thinking they're changing the world. They're rolling their eyes. Compared to yeah. if the mission was, um, Hey, we exist to, uh, bring people, uh, create moments of joy for people. Well, that's something that then the ice cream person can wrap their brain around. You could say, Hey, did you, when you served the ice cream, did you also bring them some joy? So we need to like mm-hmm. take it off the mountaintop and bring it to the floor. And I'll give you one more example, Sam. I'm working with one yeah. restaurant group in Texas right now that want help with their culture. They have all these values and they constantly talk about the values. But I'm not even sure the employees know what the values mean. Like I say, we always want to show integrity. What does that mean? It's like an abstract concept. So what I had them do is brainstorm a list of do's and don'ts, behaviors that reflect integrity, such as we always tell the truth. We follow through in our commitments. We only say kind things about ourselves, each other, and our customers. Well, these things employees can understand, and they can be held accountable for them. So if they do those things, well, then they're going to behave in a way that reflects integrity. So what I tell Mm. people running restaurants is take culture off the mountaintop and bring it to the floor and be very deliberate. That's what creates culture and creates a sense of of belonging. And one more example, and then I'll stop babbling here.
0: No, it's great. When
1: I had my edible arrangement stores, we were really big on culture and employees felt like it was theirs. They didn't own the business, but they own the culture. So I had an, an employee who was stealing time. She would call in when she was running late, have someone else punch her in. Well, the mm-hmm. employees who were doing it. They eventually came to me and they said, this, that really makes us uncomfortable because it's not what we do. And as bummed as I was that this employee was doing that, I was overjoyed that my employees used the phrase, this is not how we do things. It's their culture no. and their coworker was violating it. That's what I wanted. So culture, we have to be deliberate. It has to be down to earth.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good stuff. Uh, Scott, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, for those who you, want, you think should read this book, what else? What else in this book are you, would you suggest they should pick this book up for?
1: Well, just first of all, understand, I know how tough it is to find people, to retain them. Um, but this book really is grounded in reality and not just my own experiences. I did a lot of research. I interviewed people from a variety of industries and a lot in the restaurant industry who've proven that it can be done without necessarily breaking your benchmarks for, uh, for labor costs. So just know that mm-hmm. it can be done, but in order to get the best behavior from employees, it requires the best management from those who are in charge. And I hope to contribute to that conversation. And I'm really proud of the book and the feedback has been great. And so we'll see how it goes.
0: Yeah, it's great. How can people pick up the book, contact you, get in touch? What, what should they do now?
1: Book is available or ever books are sold. The obvious choice is Amazon, but you can order it or pick it up anywhere. Um, Best way to get in touch with me is through my website, which is scottgreenberg.com, B-E-R-G-E-N-B-E-R-G.
0: Perfect. Scott Greenberg, speaker, author, contributor to NRN. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. That was my interview with Scott Greenberg, the author and speaker and contributor to NRN. So what should you learn from this interview? Here are my six takeaways. My first takeaway is that young people today have more options for work than ever before. Uh, Scott made it uh, so clear how w- the reason it is so hard to hire today uh, isn't because young people don't want to work, but it's really just because they have so many options available to them, not only more and more restaurants, more and more businesses that they can choose from, but also the gig economy has really opened up the very definition of work. So if you're a teenager and you're busy with studying, you're you're in maybe you're doing a sport, maybe you're doing other extracurricular activities, something like driving for DoorDash suddenly becomes very uh, interesting because it fits into your schedule. Young people are doing more of a choose-your-own-adventure style of work, and they have a lot of those uh, uh, options available to them, and that's probably making it really hard for restaurants especially to hire people today. You need to lean into that and work uh, uh, with your business to your advantage in getting their attention. One line Scott said in this interview that I thought was really interesting is he said, if you're fishing in the same lake as every everybody else, make sure you have better bait. So we spent a lot of this conversation talking about what that looks like. But as a foundation, just understand the reason why it's really hard to find workers uh, isn't because they don't want to work for your brand. It's because just the uh, options available to them are way more expansive than they've ever been before. So you have to work all the harder to get their attention and become an employer of choice. My second takeaway is that employers should embrace their young workers' connection to social media. This is really interesting. I've never really thought about this quite how Scott put it, but I think it was a fabulous idea. Uh, when talking about you know, young workers, uh, they naturally have connections to brands via social media, via their phones. And what should brands do about that? Well, the, the thing he said they should do is embrace this notion that when your young employees are at work, let them post to social media. Um, it's so interesting because you think, oh, keep your phone in the back office. You know, Don't be looking at your phone all day. Don't be texting. Don't post to social media. But Scott suggested using it to your advantage where they're posting from of themselves at work. They're saying, hey, this is such a great place to work. Look at how happy I am. Look at the great food. Look at this great uh, surroundings that you can encourage your employees to post to social media from your restaurant, from their job as a way to then appeal to their friends and connections. Um, That's, of course, you're playing a a little bit with fire here, too, because you want to make sure what they're posting is good. But it's such a great idea because, look, young people love social media. They're posting all the time. They're constantly creating content. They can create content now to support your brand as a place of uh, where their connections should want to come and work. And I think that was a really, really fantastic idea. My third takeaway is that personal connections go a long way toward improving retention. Scott put it this way, employees will stay in a job because of how it makes them feel. And, you know, he points out you can't throw money at a problem. You can't just pay people more money. You have to establish personal connections with your employees in order to make them feel good so that they want to stick around. Um, He threw out a couple of examples, um, the KFC franchisee, for example, who on uh, every employee's first day, they shadow the manager Um, So they get to see what the manager does. They meet all the um, other employees that way. Um, That little detail, it seems so little, but I think it's an important illustration of this is, Um, those managers then find out that new employee's favorite candy and then give that candy to them uh, later on as um, just a special treat. Uh, It's not the candy itself, right? And and Scott pointed out, you know, some people might think of a $50, $100 gift card as a way to reward an employee who sticks around for a certain amount of time. That's fine, but it's also pretty generic. It doesn't recognize that personal want and need of the employee. Whereas if you remember their favorite candy, That means something to them. They feel seen. They feel heard. That's what young people, especially today, want. They want to be seen. So any ways in which you can establish personal connections with your hourly employees is going to make them feel good. And if they feel good, they will want to stick around. My fourth takeaway is that managers need better training in how to manage their people. Um, Scott had this really insane statistic about how, um, when he was researching for his book, he found out that on average, managers get training in managing people after ten years. Um, that's wild to think. You know, the standard practice, as he pointed out, is that uh, restaurants identify strong employees—people who are strong at making the food, cleaning the restaurant. Um, but they might not be great at, uh, managing people. And yet because they're a strong employee, they get promoted to this manager role. They don't know what they're doing. The other statistic he threw out there was how, um, only about 10% of people in his research that he found are born with natural leadership ability. People have to be trained in how to be a leader, how to manage people. And you have to give that to your managers early on. Obviously, if they're managing a team of potentially dozens of employees, that's a big job and that has, goes a long way toward, uh, improving your retention is how strong your manager is. I believe it was a recent podcast. We talked about that fact that people don't leave jobs. Uh, they leave managers. And this is, this is what it gets to. They leave bad bosses. If your managers don't know how to manage people, they become bad bosses, then people are going to leave because they don't want to work for that person. So you need to stress training your managers and training them specifically on how to manage and lead people. Do that early on. And that will, um, that will significantly help your restaurant in recruiting and retaining strong employees. My fifth takeaway is that humans can be replaced, but humanity cannot. What a great line from Scott that he said, you know, as we talked about the advent of technology and automation and robotics, what that does for the hourly workforce. Uh, Scott said, you know, he encourages technology and and its role in the restaurant. And as he said, you know, you can replace a, a worker. But for those workers you have in your restaurant, they have to embrace humanity. Again, that personal connection. Um, But that is to the customer, right? Customers still expect hospitality. They expect that warm, friendly person behind the counter or serving them at their table. And you have to constantly stress to your employees that humanity that they expect in the business. If you can offer that humanity, you're going going to have a loyal customer because they feel good. They want to come back. So again, humans, yes, can be replaced by robotics, automation, whatever. But that humanity for those people who are working at your restaurant, that cannot be replaced. My sixth and final takeaway is that the best organizations have culture by design, not by default culture, such a slippery word. We talk about it a lot here um, and it means a lot of different things, but this point was really strong. I think from Scott, that was a a direct quote from him. Um, And what he means by that is if you don't have a culture, if you're not intentional with your culture, your people will come up with one. And generally it's probably not going to be very good. Um, If you want your teams to have culture at all the way down to the store level for your frontline employees, your hourly employees, um, it has to be something that is dictated from leadership and then demonstrated to them. Scott had a couple examples of of, what that um, can look like and how if you demonstrate uh, certain core values, your employees, they will come to understand this is how we behave. This is how we do things here. And if they understand that and embrace and adapt that, They will own up to it, and they will follow that culture, and it will be a great binding force of your teams. Those are all my takeaways for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to subscribe to Takeaway wherever you listen to podcasts and leave your feedback. You can also email me at sam.ocus at informa.com. Thanks again, and talk to you next week.